Welcome back to the show. You are listening to Talking Your Way to Change, the podcast that educates you about optimal mental health and psychotherapy. I am the host, Dr. Banker, and I'm coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you are enjoying Talking Your Way to Change, thanks for tuning in. Please consider subscribing to the show. Subscribing is one of the ways for me to reach broader audiences. Also, if you think the content is worthwhile, share it with a friend. I am practicing my social media skills, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to Talking Your Way to Change, a podcast about mental health and psychotherapy. I am your host, Dr. Zan Banker. I promised I would do another episode on polyvagal theory, in which I offered examples of how to use this theory in everyday life and some strategies for moving up and down the ladder of our nervous system. Maya Angelou stated, people don't always remember what you say or even what you do, but they will always remember how you make them feel. This captures eloquently in one sentence the implication of polyvagal theory in practice. Despite all of our psychological research, training, and experience, the therapeutic alliance is the most powerful agent of change in therapy. This relationship is greatly influenced by the therapist's autonomic nervous system interacting with their client's autonomic nervous system. We as people influence and are influenced by our social engagement system. We are constantly giving and detecting cues of safety or threat. These cues are either real or faulty. When I think back on my personal experiences as a client, one of my most powerful memories and what I would call an inner resource now in my mind's eye is my therapist's face and eyes and what they meant to me. Calm, safe, warm, caring, interested. In essence, it was the repetition of her listening with her heart and her face and eyes that remain, that embodied experience. Let's start with some examples of polyvagal theory in everyday life. When we move from the safe ventral vagal state into a sympathetic response, we typically begin to experience an increase in heart rate, blood pressure, adrenaline, oxygen is circulating to the vital organs. We have a decrease in relational ability. We have a decrease in the ability to hear the human voice. Our digestion shuts down. Here are some common examples of what we might hear that might not be obvious to people without a trauma history. Uh, A text message from a boss could trigger a sympathetic response, a request from an authority figure for a meeting, a message from the school or another parent that your child has behaved in such a way that it needs corrective action, traffic, inability to reach someone or a person when contacting customer service, losing a child at the mall. That one seems like It would be sympathetic for for everyone, whether you had a trauma history or not. Um, Forgetting an important item at home, being called on in school, being teased, bullied, criticized, yelled, a sense of feeling trapped, 
going to the dentist or being in a medical chair that mechanically leans back. Listening to someone cough or even sneeze repeatedly. I find that one fascinating. Listening to people cough. And what have we been probably doing for the last two and a half years? Listening to people cough. No wonder we can get irritated with people who are sick and coughing, right? Okay, let's look at some examples of slipping down into that dorsal um, vagal state. Well, how does that look and feel? Emotionally, it might feel a bit like numbness. You might feel like you're disassociated, dizzy, hopeless. You might have an intense feeling of shame, a sense of feeling trapped, uh, perhaps an out-of-body experience, disconnected from the world. Um, Our eyes may look fixed or spaced out. The dorsal motor nucleus through the unmyelinated vagus nerve decreases our heart rate, our blood pressure, our facial expressions, and our sexual and immune response systems. We may be triggered to feel nauseated. We might even throw up. We could defecate. We could spontaneously urinate. We may feel low or no pain. Our lungs can constrict and we breathe slower. We may have difficulty getting words out or feel constriction around our throat. Our brain may have decreased metabolism and causes a lot of loss of body awareness. We might have limp limbs, a decreased ability to think clearly, a decreased ability to lay down narrative memories. Our body posture may collapse or curl up in a ball. Firstly, most of these defense reactions happen either to a real or an imagined threat. COVID would have been a real threat. The pandemic being a perfect example of how this ongoing threat and disruption disruption for years with lots of ambiguity and uncertainty would lead to a bodily response of shutdown. So here are some examples that might trigger someone to fall into dorsal. Um, the isolation, social isolation, either from the pandemic or other reasons, working from home and not having opportunities to interact with others, becoming ill, having to visit with relatives that you don't feel safe with, noticing that you are disassociated, like that trigger, it could be anything, a smell, a setting, an interpersonal dynamic, something coming from inside yourself, a memory, something from the environment being hospitalized without access to loved ones. Often it is an accumulation of stressors that lead to a sense of overwhelm and shutdown. And if a person's not able to use the social engagement resources of others, they might resort to strategies that keep them in the dorsal state, such as overeating, binge watching Netflix, maybe sleeping too much. So what are some examples of ideas of how to come out of that sympathetic nervous system. Probably one that we mostly hear about and and have probably one of the hardest times implementing is just the simplicity of breath work. It seems as humans, and I've mentioned this before, we always kind of want something, I don't know, a little bit more catchy or engaging than breath work, but breath work is the most powerful. You could try pushing the palms of your hands together a quick walk, exercise, calling a trusted friend who will listen and not say, you need to calm down. 
but intuitively know that that is not what you need. You need to use their autonomic nervous system to help regulate your own. You can visualize a boundary between yourself and the triggering event to get perspective. You could verbally say to yourself, oh, I'm having those bodily feelings of being hijacked. Deb Dana talks about sighing. Sighing resets the respiratory system, affecting our physiological state. Head outside and look for the color of green or blue. It's the calming effect. Ways of coming out of dorsal often need to be strategies that respect this dorsal reality, but movement towards some mobilization. This might even first be visualizing mobilization. If we have access to another human, any form of touch, sitting next to them, hugging them, if you're sleeping with someone, a hand or foot on their body will begin to start to wake up the nervous system. You could go into nature. You could look at nature. Walking a labyrinth or finding one online and following it with your finger. In Deb Dana's book, Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection, she says that people have been walking labyrinths for centuries. Unlike a maze, a labyrinth has one path and no dead ends, often thought of as a path to transformation. When you enter a labyrinth, there is a release of connection to the everyday world, a sense of receiving wisdom when you reach the center, and a subtle shift in your sense of yourself and the world when the circuit is completed. When walking a labyrinth, there is a slight increase in mobilization, followed by a return to calm, making this a gentle autonomic exercise. Also, the Labyrinth Society says that walking or otherwise just interacting with a labyrinth might enable a set of physiological responses, such as increased calm, quiet, and relaxation, decreased agitation, anxiety, and stress that allows for an emergence of a state of mind responses, such as centeredness, clarity, openness, peace, reflection. In turn, this state of mind responses might increase one's receptivity to flashes of intuition, hunches, nudges, and from one's inner voice and other types of insight regarding one's problems or concerns. So it might be that, you know, walking a labyrinth would help in a fight or flight kind of activation state. But I love this idea for someone in dorsal because it's not like you're sort of saying, hey, you know, you don't need to go outside and take a jog or run or something because that is not going to happen. But it might be that you can imagine yourself walking in a labyrinth or you could follow one on a piece of paper like a maze, you know, using your finger. That can be very effective too. A few more suggestions could be doing some breath work, finding something that would make you laugh or yell. Remember, you're trying to climb up the ladder and you will need to engage some of your sympathetic nervous system. So often you find that someone will be starting moving out of a shutdown and become angry as they describe what is happening to them. And I say, good, you're getting a bit angry. So we know you're moving up the ladder. And then I encourage embodied practices such as going into nature, painting, drawing, watering plants. Finally, I'd like to turn to the topic of trauma and the refugees coming out of Ukraine. 
As mental health workers, we think about what are the suggestions or strategies based on what we know about trauma and the research that we have that we might use to mitigate the psychological suffering, or to put more bluntly, the psychological damage, or scientifically put the impact of this war on people's psychology. Is there something that we could be doing? I'm not an expert in this area, but I have had a lot of experience in my many years as a psychologist, and I am adept at applying theory and research to real-life issues, and wanted to share some of my thoughts and opinions about how polyvagal theory might offer some guidance. Let's start first with what the theory states are the cues of safety. Face-to-face interactions, using gentle eye contact, with sensitivity to another person's preference for looking away, using a loving gaze, tilting your head, listening with your heart, speaking in a calm manner without a lot of sudden changes in the tone or volume of your voice, maybe even using a sing-song quality with younger children, letting your eyes crinkle and squint when smiling, asking if the other would like some form of touch. If there is a possibility of a refugee being able to use nature to create some form of structure for their child, that would help too. This would allow for some normalcy to return and possibly move the child even a few movements or moments back into vagal ventral. Firstly, I would recommend that mothers try to get themselves into a calm state as much as possible before interactions with another person or child, and this will have a huge impact on the child's autonomic nervous system. An example that I was considering comes from the Girl Scout badge of um, numbers numbers or math and nature, in which we created sundials. Now, a sundial is an instrument showing the time by the shadow of a pointer caster by the sun onto a plate marked with hours of the day. One way that you can make them is to gather, um, you could use a paper plate or if you're outside, you could use rocks or stones or shells and you just put it in a circle and then you put the pointer in the middle like you could take a stick. And you could talk with a child about the use of these instruments and how they've been used over time to mark time focusing on the small natural wonders of the world, nature, and perhaps how time might be quite different now for them in midst of this war or losing their home and being a refugee. This type of activity would be usually utilizing a few strategies for co-regulation. It would be a parent or an adult and a child, nature. It would be a very kind of cognitive brief lesson and a way of connection of people across time, large periods of time, as these were used in medieval times as well. It always brings me some joy when I hear about um, individuals in Ukraine taking time to celebrate and observe important cultural rituals such as marriage or religious holidays, as I think it's likely going to enhance an individual's autonomic nervous system to enter a state of social engagement and safety. I would also recommend sleeping together um, so that the co-regulation of the autonomic nervous systems could happen when both individuals were unconscious or in a state of sleep. Sleep is a whole other huge topic in the U.S. 
and one that I would don't really want to get into now, but in thinking of the sleep training that has been ever so popular in terms of a polyvagal theory, it makes me think and consider, is it likely that the infants are actually just falling into a dorsal vagal state and that's what's putting them to sleep and that they are not going into the sleep state from that um, social engagement safety ventral vagal state? The goal of utilizing this theory is to not always be in ventral, as we can see, even in the war, that we need to be able to go into other states. We need to be able to go into sympathetic. We need to be able to go into dorsal. However, if we can recognize that our bodies are always detecting and responding to safety and danger, this could strengthen our capacity to influence these processes so that we can help mitigate Um, creating a habitual response to events that might not fit in other real situations. The good news is that as mammals, we are wired to sustain high levels of threat. If we have others and or a caregiver that can help us co-regulate. Trauma is essentially experiencing something that we can't, we cannot regulate or cope with alone and that we don't have others to help us. Okay, in the next episode, I will discuss how our autonomic state influences the stories that we tell ourselves. In this final episode of on this topic, I will discuss how story follows state. Until next time, this is Dr. Banker. Hi everyone, thanks again for listening. I need to alert you that this podcast is not meant to be a substitution for mental health treatment. Although we talk about psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. If listeners are interested in pursuing therapy, I would refer you to psychologytoday.com backslash US or your insurance carrier network.